queued up so I can watch. I'm going to have it muted on another device. All right. Welcome to the Backyard Professor Live. I am going to have yet another discussion with someone who really has been enjoying this book on Method Infinite. I, I finished uh, a couple of podcasts today, a couple of these videos, and it is remarkable the effect that this book is having on so many of us with either Masonic roots or no Masonic roots. It appears to me that this book has just about a little bit of everything for everybody. And it's done well. So I've got on the phone with me my good friend, Doug Vincent. He's a patron. He uh, watches my channel. He uh, contributes to the channel. He told me he bought this book because of my recommendation. He has been reading it. He's not all the way through it yet. But hey, you're you're echoing, Doug. Turn that thing off. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's no big deal. So, Doug, we are on live. How, how are you feeling? Yeah, we are on the show, pal. This is the real McCoy. Woohoo! I'm I'm feeling okay, but it's a little bit intimidating coming along behind Nick Tursky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, when yeah. I scheduled you, I never thought about that. I apologize, but. Uh, <laughs> I would have been just That's as scared. Okay. So no, it's not a big worry. We <laughs> what we're doing is we're celebrating this book and having fun with it and enjoying it. And just this book uh is for everybody, wouldn't you think? Yeah. It is. This is uh this is what I would term an eye-opener, this book. Because you're going to learn. I don't know. I don't care who you are. You're going to learn something new. Uh, I certainly didn't know that much about masonry going into this. Uh, and they have a wonderful little uh, introductory chapter on, uh, you know, the, the history of masonry and kind of the evolution of it uh, and some of the, um, the things that were going on with masonry around the time of Joseph Smith. Uh, so, you know, that helped me because, you know, being somebody who doesn't really know much about it, yeah. I think the, the, the biggest shock in there for me was that Masonry was actually started out as a Christian organization. It was based on a lot of Christian, uh, principles, uh, and, and history, uh, you know, a lot of the allegorical stories and, and lore of masonry includes biblical patri patriarchs and things like that. And so early masonry, and masonry was very Christian. But then just before Joseph Smith's family kind of entered the scene, it started shifting to become sort of neutral as far as, you know, which God you believed in. You just basically needed to believe in a God. And yeah. That's and so that it was kind of going through this transition uh, when Joseph Smith was alive, uh, where they were jettisoning uh, the strictly uh, Christian aspects of it and making it a little more generic. Uh, and there were people who were all upset about that, and other people who were all for it. You know, uh, one of the people all for it was Joseph Smith's family. Uh, I mean, his grandfather was. You know, super anti-religion, very. Yeah, organized anti -religion. religion. What was it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Wasn't his dad's brother the one who, uh, after Lucy Max started going back to church to the Methodist and trying to get Joseph Senior to it, his brother came in and had the Thomas Paine's book on reason and threw it at him. Yeah. <laughs> That's a yeah, fun story. <laughs> yeah, it was his grandfather and his great uncle Joseph Smith. That's right. Uh, you know, so that would that would have been Joseph Smith Senior's dad and uncle came in, <laughs> threw Thomas Paine at him, <laughs> hit him right in the head with reason. Unbelievable. Well, and this kind of helps us see where the uh, I like that because the 
the tension between uh, being religious and being a part of a bigger group neighborly, because the times were hard anyway, was really reflected directly in Joseph Smith's family, which I thought was well no, was. demonstrated in this book. That, that was fun background. I loved how they started before Joseph Smith's birth and then brought it up. Yeah. Yeah, that was cool. uh, it, it really it really was good and and uh, enlightening to learn a little bit about that and uh, some of the and I just, you know, as I was going through it, I kept underlining little words and phrases, you know, like the, the three degrees. Yeah. You know, things that in the church that are so familiar to us, like three degrees of glory, whether well, three degrees of masonry, all these little kind of parallels uh, just in some of the wording. Uh, uh, it talks about three great knocks. If you've been through the temple, you know what that's talking about. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, just all kinds of little words and phrases that I just thought, oh, oh, that is so. Joseph Smith would have been familiar with this terminology and this language, you know. Yeah. Uh, be, because he, his family members did, uh, you know eventually become masons a lot of them his brothers um his father we think but that's kind of an interesting story originally um the uh joseph smith senior uh, evidently applied for freemasonry you know uh and was kind of rejected that's yeah. the best i can think of yeah. but but even even beyond that i think uh it is you know it's like in order to understand anybody and why they think the way they think, the more you understand about their history, the more you can piece together about what might have caused them to think that way, you know? And so yeah. having another uh, reference that you can go to and kind of get that information, uh, especially, you know, some of these things that I've never seen before, uh, <clears throat> and just understand how, how it might influence them. Uh, and, and change them and shape them. <clears throat> One of the things that I thought was really interesting was um, the Smiths. They were, you know, they lived in Vermont, and Vermont just happened to be a, a, a super hotbed of not only Masonic uh, influence. You know, they they had a lot of uh, uh, lodges and some of the first lodges around. Mm -hmm. uh, we're in Vermont. Uh, early Vermont coinage contained Masonic symbols on it. You know, that's how influential it was. But you also kind of had this, uh, you know, the Vermont was very um, uh, patriotic, uh, you know, believed in independence and, and that kind of thing. And, and Vermont was going, yeah, 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 that's it, yeah. The one on the right, that's all seeing eye right there in the middle of that coin. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, so you have you, know, you have the Smiths living in this hotbed of uh, you know idealistic uh, political leanings. Uh, their society was very idealistic. Uh, yeah, was. They were kind of going through uh, a. Uh, they were kind of going through a, 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 a war, so to speak, over the, the boundaries of Vermont, you know. And, yeah, the state and itself. Thought, yeah. The state and, itself, and it yeah. was cool to see how they, uh, it was really cool to see how they, the Vermonteers were really pretty serious about, we want our independence, man. And uh, so yeah. they were very individualistic. And so that, very, it's very. real interesting how they, and Nick kind of alluded to this a little bit uh, this morning when we were talking about the uh, the Joseph Smith Sr. at first being rejected out of the lodge, possibly because uh, his, his circumstances were just not very good. And so they were worried that he wasn't going to be a good lodge member. And so right. someone... Someone said, no, that's one possibility, like Nick was saying. 
And uh, so this moving yeah. around, that would also affect your psychology with, with not only the place you're at, but with your family, with how you're going to live your life. What about further down the road? How do we prepare for the future and all that? And uh, he, it appeared to me like Joseph Sr. was really attempting to uh, set the course so that it would be as easy as he could possibly make it. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse until Joseph arrived. Yeah. <laughs> kind of yeah. interesting. That, isn't it? that is fascinating. One thing, I, I just want to read this if I could, um, because I thought this was really interesting. Uh, and this is from chapter two. Uh, let's see what page am I on. I'm on page 15. Um, it says, historian David Hackett observed that the growing convergence of Christianity and Freemasonry around Enlightenment ideals marked the first quarter of the 19th century. Masonry avoided the extremes of both sectarianism and non-biblical rationalism, and thus it attracted ministers and members of liberal denominations, such as Episcopalians, Congregationalists, and Unitarians to its leaders. Until the social unraveling of, of Freemasonry during the scandal known as the Morgan Affair, the fraternity served as a kind of secular priesthood. Yeah. So that was pretty fascinating. Uh, so, you know, and we just, we, you know, living today, it's hard for us to imagine what it was like in that day, but Freemasonry, Freemasonry was widely regarded as a good organization. And you had all kinds of Founding fathers that were Freemasons uh, in Vermont, Ethan Allen, the Green Mountain Boys, they were Freemasons. It's just like, uh, you know, it was considered sort of, uh, I don't say on a par with Christianity, but it was considered good, like Christianity is considered good. It, it, it appears good. like the Christians were really all on the up and up with having it being a part of their culture and their uh, their overarching philosophy, even though they were a particular... Yeah, it's real interesting that it didn't matter which, uh, like they said, the, it didn't matter whether you're liberal or conservative, Episcopalian or Congregationalist or Unitarians. Uh, and there were a lot of the uh, people back then, especially in the American government, who were Unitarians, at the time and becoming uh, Masonic Unitarians or Masonic Episcopalians, it didn't seem to phase them like it does today. There's still all kinds of fascinating conspiracies about Freemasonry, oh, yeah. Albert Pike and the Illuminati. They're going to take <laughs> over the world, you know. And that, fortunately, these guys didn't delve into a lot of that stuff. A, a lot of it's really rather silly, but uh, yeah. Exactly. Another uh, really important thing there in Vermont uh, was the uh, Nathaniel Wood Group, okay? Yeah, that was so, fun to read, wasn't it? That that's kind yeah. of cool American history, also. You kind of go, oh, hey, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, but evidently, Wood uh, Woods Group they were uh, Masons, but they had a lot of mystical beliefs, and um, they believed in using divining rods to discern the will of God. Yeah. And so they received revelations, you know, and, and you're through thinking, that rod. This sounds this sounds kind of Mormonish right here, <laughs> you know. Uh, so they also uh, made excavations. They they did treasure <laughs> digging, um, which of course figured really prominently in, in Joseph Smith's family. Absolutely. And um, one of the leg, uh, Masonic legends that caused them to do this is that uh, there's a legend that uh, there's a gold plate of Enoch. It's this golden plate that was buried and it contained the keyword, the, this, the, the Mason secret word, which was the name of God. Uh, and um, evidently had 
you know, supposed to have, yeah, amazing powers. There you go. This yeah. is out of this is out of Quinn's early Mormonism in the magic worldview. But there's there's some yeah. various pictures of people using rods in that particular uh, realm and area uh -huh. with the philosophy. This wasn't just a one or two odd people out. Apparently, it was a cultural item. Yeah, it, it was yeah, something, it, and and it it wasn't only in or involved in a true Christian denomination. Didn't matter what religion you were, you were using rods. That that's fascinating. Yeah. And then that reminded us of that. Uh, I know you're heading here. Sorry to steal your thunder, but I oh, remember yeah. this when I was a missionary. The particular edition of the Doctrine and Covenants I took with me on my mission, 1979 to 81. It still had that description in, I can't remember if it was section six, something like that, where Oliver Cowdery was to use his rod to receive revelation. That was in the Doctrine and Covenants, and they do mention that in this method infinite. Yeah, yeah, and they took, uh, they changed the word so that it doesn't say rod. Yeah, they did. Uh, they call it gift. gift, yeah, which yeah. it was. But, However, you know they're hiding something. You know they're hiding yeah, yeah. that particular aspect of it. Yeah, they're they're trying to deflect there. Um, yep. But there, but this uh, this uh, thing with woods, um, evidently, uh, Joseph Smith Sr. and William Cowdery, who was the father of Oliver Cowdery, were said to have been involved in the Nathaniel Woods group. Uh, and uh, that kind of is another little eye opener there. It's like, oh, wait, you know, yeah. now we're really getting into something here. You yeah. Know? Seeing here and Oliver Cowdery's dad, you know, they're together on it. So there's sort of this nepotism <laughs> in this whole thing. Not be, sort of. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah the, the, it was a family hand. Which, which continues to this day, I might say, in the church. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, so the, they called it. Evidently, uh, Woods predicted uh, the, the return of Christ and the apocalypse. You know, he he made the mistake of giving a date. Yeah, and that date came and passed. And uh, just like and Miller, everybody lost faith. Yeah. Yep. So uh, they call that the Woods scrape. That's what they call that. That. Uh, that yeah, they, incident there. So. They don't have a picture. He has a. Who is this guy? Oh, this is Ethan Allen. Oh, yeah, this was the uh, leader of the Vermont Green Mountain Boys. Yeah, that, yeah, the Green Mountain Boys. Bunch of Masons right there. Uh, super famous in, in American history. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so so it's, just all, it's just all over. Masonry is just all over, uh, you know, that particular milieu, if you want to call it that. And, and, physic and physical areas. Yeah. Another interesting thing related to Woods, though, is that um, after that thing kind of broke up, the, the group kind of broke up, many of them migrated to upstate New York, where the Smiths would later relocate. In, so in fact, what, what page are you this, on? Are you still looking in the book? I'm, yeah, I'm on page 20 up at the top there. Oh, okay. I was on 19 at the bottom. So I see where you're getting at. Yeah. 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 Keep going. Keep yeah, going. Yeah. This is good stuff. Yeah. Uh, read, read, read on the bottom of page 19, uh, that last paragraph. That's really fascinating. Okay. What some of Joseph's neighbors thought. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, this is this whole section is really good right here. Okay. So here we go. Whether or not the Smiths and the Cowdery's participated personally in the Nathaniel Wood group. The Woods brand of Masonic religious ardor was thought to be uh, thought by contemporaries to have been replicated in early Mormonism. Yeah. Methodist circuit writer Laban Clark recalled about the year 1840, he had heard two Mormon preachers in Connecticut who, Connecticut <clears throat> I'm sorry, who held to the same or much the same doctrines which the Woods did in Milton. Clark firmly testified, I have no doubt that their movement gave origin to the Mormons. I have no doubt their movement gave origin to the Mormons. They knew Joseph Sr. And of course, of course, he was out there ranting and raving about his new son, whom was going to be a next prophet. 
<laughs> right, had been born with uh, uh, the placenta wrapped on his head. And yeah, he was and, and that Nick yeah. didn't say it in the uh, footnote, but the footnote in that book uh, referred to, I'm trying to find, I can't find that particular spot, but the call, the placenta like that, they said uh, in Joseph Smith's area, uh, there were there was the theme of what made Noah so extra righteous as a prophet to be chosen is because like Moses, him, he was born with what they called a veil over his face. And that was yeah, that call. And that's why Joseph Sr. was so astonished when uh, Joseph had that call. Yes, it's a natural situation, a natural event, but it immediately, I mean, on the moment Joseph Smith was born, in his dad's eyes and his mom's, um, it put him right in line with the biblical prophets and patriarchs, Noah and Moses included. Really interesting about the thought processes in the, in the, uh, uh, the biblical themes, as well as the parallels with the Masonic themes, because they were also the Masons. George Oliver, in his Antiquities, was talking about the importance of the Master Masons and Grand Master Masons in the Patriarchs. <laughs> Quite right. a tie-in, both angles. Right. Yeah, that was fun. The other thing, the other thing interesting, you just uh, since we're talking about Joseph Smith's birth, is uh, you know his, his older brother Hiram had been named after potentially we don't know for sure of course but uh, it kind of makes sense Hiram Abiff who is the central figure in the Masonic uh, you know the Royal the, Arch the, yeah the, this, yeah the, the Royal Arch story he's the hero basically of that story um, and. That had become a super popular name in Vermont because there were so many Masons in Vermont. Uh, I think it's interesting, though. So Joseph is born, and Joseph Smith names him after himself. Joseph Smith Sr. Uh -huh. names him after himself, you know. And Joseph Smith Sr. had been called a dreamer of dreams. So I think that this was, like you said, he saw a seer born into his family and he named him after himself because uh, Joseph Smith Sr. was uh, evidently somewhat famous for uh, being a dreamer of dreams. Well, that, yes, so, yes. And he worked that rod and he was involved with a group of rods men who yeah. also claimed one aspect of the rod working was receiving direct revelations from deity. So, yeah, he... Right. He would want Joseph to, now that Joseph was born with the veil on his head, with the veil on his face, he would definitely want Joseph to continue in that tradition. Absolutely. Absolutely. So from father to son, boom, right there. So from, so what this is all kind of boil, uh, leading up to in my mind is that you literally have in their environment, in their society, in their religion, in their uh, the practices, uh, the beliefs, the legends, everything, they're, they're literally swimming in this soup that's a mix of Christianity, folk magic, and masonry. And it's uh, these three things are just swirling all around them, you know. It's that like they're in, in this big pot of soup made up of these three ingredients. Yeah. And in the church, they always leave out one of those ingredients. You know, well, they actually leave out two of them, you know. Uh, in the church, they only tell you about the, the religious fervor. Yeah. But really, it was way more complicated than that. Absolutely. You had, you had this folk magic thing, which, uh, you know, uh, you had... Uh, the Christian churches, some of them were warring against that, you know, trying to get people to stop believing in that kind of stuff. Yeah. You had Freemasonry and all the allegorical stories in Freemasonry, or a lot of the people in Joseph Smith's time, they took the allegorical stories and they basically believed them as if they were actual events, you know. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. They and, and and you can tell that Joseph Smith believed that. He believed that. Yeah, he had, he ended up with a uh based on what research I've been doing uh for the last few years, especially when it came to discussing the uh the Bayesian probability of Joseph Smith having a literal signature of Abraham on the papyri. I've did several videos on those. He ended up being much more of a, uh, a literalist. It, it appears to me that, yeah, uh, yeah he liked the, uh, instead of recognizing the Bible as a pastiche of legends, he wanted it to be historical and he wanted the uh, the information he was getting from his his family, his friends, his neighbors, the witnesses to his work, regardless of whether it was the Book of Mormon or the Book of Abraham, it didn't matter. All of those guys were Freemasons. The theme of adding legendary material, it appears to me it wasn't in Joseph's mind. What he was doing is he was fleshing out the history and that goes right odd for us i you know come on that's odd for us but in his day that is how they read understood lived and utilized the legendary materials out of both movements the bible christianity and freemasonry so it actually makes sense he became a literalist doesn't it in a way yeah, it, he became a literalist. He really was a literalist. And the church continues to be literalist to this day. So. <laughs> to an extreme, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, to the, to the point where it's 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 costing them because... Well, see, that's... Yeah, yeah, that's part of the testimony killer in so many regards because when we actually do uh, utilize the sciences to discover the real history of Israel. And I'm looking for it. It's my favorite book. Hold on. I'm doing one of the backyard professor things again. But when, when we get to the actual science, William Dever, beyond the text, this is on the archaeological portrait of ancient Israel. Then we see that that uh, so-called reality just it has no uh, congruence not only with what's written in the text but what is interpreted through inspiration and revelation and name whatever prophet you want Old Testament prophet, New Testament apostle, Mormon restored prophets None of their stuff matches the reality because they took the literalist point of view. If you took the Freemason allegorical slash legendary concept as a lesson for us, then it becomes, and this is just me, this is Backyard Professor Doctrine 101, it becomes much more meaningful and useful, just like the parables of Jesus. Nobody imagines those are literal. To literalize that part of his teaching is just insanely silly because it destroys the whole point of it. It's not meant to be history. That's why when people read the Zohar, the Jewish spiritual material, the Kabbalah, if you'll read the, the Bahir or the Sefer Yetzirah or the Zohar, take you quite a few years, but you can do it. If you was to say, oh, yeah, well, this, this is how it's literally supposed to happen and all, you get completely lost. That's why the Jews don't like you studying the esoteric materials without a teacher with you. But going literalistic, like Mormonism did, 
crap, they can just write stupid priesthood meaning manuals and gospel essential books and all that and just let you read to your heart's content. They can dumb it down, which they do. They can include or exclude whatever they want, and they don't have to discuss, have an enjoyable discussion, and, and worry about anything because what you read is true. Nothing about what we read is true. I think the Masons have the edge up in that regard. And this is one of the the new ways that it's got me thinking this book, Method Infinite. It's got me thinking I could have to realign my whole approach to what? Reality, to history, to philosophy without question, etc., and see how it goes without being so literalistic, because that's what I was raised to believe. I mean, I went into apologetics with that mindset, and I got my butt handed to me over and over again (laughs) by all of you guys in my audience. (laughs) Fun stuff, though, to see the the comparison contrast, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite fascinating, and, and you can see that that we really did kind of take a left turn there uh, when we went down that uh, literalist route, but there we are. Um, let's see. Um, here we go. Hey, to... hey, Mormon, Mish- Mormon Yeshiva makes a good point here in the comments. Ancient Israel is more closely connected to ancient Egypt than many want to admit. I I think that is a real good insight. And my suspicion is, well, I mean, Uzdavanis, the uh, the guy, the new author that I'm really jumping into uh, really powerfully, he shows, in fact, it's in this book too. And this is a very, very, this is his magnum opus right here, philosophy as the right of rebirth. And notice the Egyptian picture on the cover. That's no joke. It all starts. It goes back. It's all connected with ancient Egypt. And then by sheer fortuitous luck, papyri comes into Joseph Smith's life. That's one reason why he really felt destiny was just leading him along. Because if it uh-huh. didn't go to Egypt, then it wasn't valid. Uzdavnis is yeah. huge on this. He tra- he shows the tracing of the mysteries in antiquity where the beginning is in Egypt. And, and let me show you this real quick. This is just one example of many. However, uh, one of the big topics, seriously big topics, in Freemasonry is the symbolisms of the gods of the Egyptians and the light they throw on Freemasonry. Now, this is a bit older of a book on Freemasonry that I've got, but there's another one, the Stellar Theology and Masonic Astronomy, that ties in with several of the ancient Egyptian concepts of astronomy. But it begins in Egypt. It comes up through the ancient Orphics, the Kabiroi, the, the Greeks. It came up into the Greeks with the Eleusinian mysteries and all that jazz. Then Pythagoras, then Plato, then early Christianity, then Neoplatonism. And it kept right on going up into alchemy, hermeticism, Gnosticism in early Christianity, then alchemy in the Middle Ages, which which hermetic and alchemical materials is what Pike in his Morals and Dogma and in his Esoterica said was where masonry acquired its materials. Well, with all of this mason stuff flying around him, the William Morgan affair, the battle between the spurious and the authentic masons, the arguments back and forth. Um, did you get to the point where they were documenting? Did you get the point? Uh-oh, I dropped Nikola Tursky on his head. Well, just the book. Did you get to the point yet to where they are describing how many uh, publications, how many books, how many hundreds of newspaper articles were published and how many thousands of meetings were being held all over the then United States on just this time. I mean, there is no way 
that Joseph Smith would not have been influenced by it. You keep talking. I'm going to find that because that was one of the impressive things for me that uh, the overarching tidal wave of information on Freemason, both good and bad, right in Joseph Smith's youth while he was a while he was getting the Book of Mormon. He was acquiring the Book of Mormon yeah. when all of this noise was going on. And it went on for yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was not just a one-time uh-uh. uh, event. It was, a, it was an extended thing. Um, yeah, so uh, just a couple of other things. Um, uh, uh, Joseph's older brothers, Alvin and Hiram, uh, there's no documented evidence of Alvin being a Mason. Uh, there's a couple of little illusions that he might have been, but definitely Hiram was amazing. Uh, they've got his lodge records and everything. And, and according, uh, even Hebrew C. Kimball noted that Hiram Smith received the first three degrees of masonry in Ontario County, New York. Oh, boom. So, yeah, he got uh, it. He got, we, yeah, he got his yeah. in New York. Right, right, right. And they, yeah, and they believe that Joseph Smith Sr. also eventually. Uh, got his uh, once once he got out of Vermont. <laughs> once he got yeah. out of Vermont, so they they had blacklisted him in Vermont, and, and once he was out of that influence, well, he, he had to be away fly. from he had to be away from the Grand Lodge of all the other lodges in that particular district, and moving mm-hmm. to Palmyra got him out of that. So then he became a Mason. That, that's fascinating how that yeah. works, isn't it? And and just uh, that just brings to mind another thing. I, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but no, but the don't. Grand Lodge, the Grand Lodge concept and the other lodges is a direct correlation between stakes and wards. I mean, you couldn't get any clearer than, than that. I mean, that organization is definitely Masonic. Boom. It's fascinating how they bring out so many uh, small little interesting things that that we start thinking of once we start reading this kind of material with the all-pervasiveness of masonry, though. That's part of the fun of all of this, is discovering that stuff oh, yeah. like that. That's that's fun. Yep. This is, uh, this is great fun stuff. Let's see. Um, so I take it that means you're enjoying the book. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, so then uh, just... Uh, after they get, after the Smiths get into New York, so they had a horrible time in, in Vermont. They lost all their fortune. Yeah. Um, they were dirt poor for about 15 years. And Can you imagine that? Back, 15 years being dirt poor. That's a long time, folks. Especially um, when you have kids. <laughs> yeah. They, they finally got to uh, Palmyra, and they actually did really well. Yeah. They uh, the first thing that they did. Now this is uh, I've never heard of this before. Maybe I'm just not that well read. But um, they uh, the first thing they did is they set up a shop. They had a store in their home. Uh, it was called a uh, a pie and beer store. Not Whoa! Beer, hey, like maybe I need beer. to start one of those for us. <laughs> Pie and beer. Pie and beer. How can you beat pie and beer? <laughs> Woohoo! It wasn't. It wasn't beer, beer though. It was root beer. Oh come on! Don't yeah. ruin the fun. Root beer. And, and and evidently it was a big hit with all the kids. You know, so they had all these. Sweets. It would be, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So they they did that. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Alvin and uh, Joseph Smith Senior set up a Cooper shop. Which is was a big deal. So that coopers make barrels, all right. Barrels are used in shipping and storage. And guess what was coming down the countryside? Just literally blocks. A UFO. The Smiths. No, nope, the Erie Canal. <laughs> a UFO. Sorry. Well, you asked. <laughs> I'll drink to that. <laughs> the Erie Canal, which was literally the super highway of their day, you know. Yeah. And uh, and so you had all this shipping going on. So you know, being a Cooper and having a Cooper shop was a really good move. So the Smiths kind of, you know, they had a, a, a season of of uh, 
you know, more plenty, I wouldn't say plenty, but more plenty, um, they, they weren't dirt poor anymore. So that allowed them to relax and do other things, like get back to their treasure digging, which is what they did in the area of, of uh, Palmyra. They went back to their treasure digging. And it's kind of in that era right there when they get out of the, the financial hole they were in and start doing okay, that's the time that Joseph Smith finds his first seer stone, okay, which is what his dad was one. You know, his dad prophesied that he was going to be a seer. Yeah. He needed a seer stone. Hey, know? did did you catch and, that? Did you catch that reference when it mentioned that? And you gotta you gotta keep this in mind. One, he's young. My suspicion is he probably would have rode a horse, but that seer stone he found was a hundred and fifty miles away. You remember reading that? That was oh, yeah. astonishing. 150 miles away, and he went and got it. And then he had to dig 20, 20, 30 feet deep to get it. I mean, that's pretty serious yeah. determination. You and, know. He, uh, he, and he had to work his way. There and back, because you know. Right. Yeah, you don't travel a hundred. You don't travel hundred and fifty miles, not even on horseback, in faster than no. three days that I'm aware of. And, and this is. And that's one direction. America. That's frontier America. Yeah. Yeah. So the the roads were, if there was any, they were pretty bad. Yeah. And um, there were dangers. You know, uh, wild animals. There were. Still Indians, you know, Native Americans yeah. are not really happy about these pioneers especially on their land. And, you know? and digging so, up the land to make a new canal. Yeah, digging, <laughs> digging up their, yeah, sac their sacred land. Yeah, that's sacrilege so to the Native Americans. So. Absolutely. So that, that was kind of a miraculous thing there where he went on this, this trip as a young kid on his own uh, to find his seer stone. But yeah, there you go. So then, then later he gets another seer stone in the well. That that one I think everybody's familiar with. For, the for Sally Chase. The well. Yeah. Yeah, the Chase well, and yeah. and Joseph Smith gets it, and he won't give it back to him. I I think one of the so. most shocking things I discovered on reading D. Michael Quinn is Joseph Smith stole the seer stone that translated the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was just I couldn't get over that for I couldn't get over that for months and months and months. He literally did. He literally did. <laughs> she he wanted it back did. and she let him know it. And he said, uh-uh, not happening. <laughs> oh wow. So then now Joseph has a seer stone. Now he can actually participate in the treasure digs. And um, Joseph Smith uh, Sr. said this. He said, my son Joe had seen the spirit, uh, which he described as a little old man with a long beard, that's in quotes, who had helped the young man obtain great treasures. Yeah. In a pay-on to Masonic legend, the elder Smith prophesied that his son would bring forth a book telling the account of the antediluvians who, at the approach of the great flood, they deposited their substance in large and spacious underground chambers. Notice that context. There yeah. The antediluvian. Antediluvians. There it so, is. The seer stone with the lost word, the book. Yep. It's interesting how they're all, they all each had kind of different various shapes and holes and all that jazz. I mean, yeah. they're, there was no set. That that was the thing that kind of intrigued me when I got through Michael Quinn. Is I, I said, well, I mean, there's no there's no set type of shape or kind, specific type of a mineral or whatever for a seer stone. So how the heck would you know if it worked? Well, you got to stick it in the hat and look at it for a while. And some of them have you ever uh, done? Have you ever done that, Doug? Come on, be honest. Joseph Smith said everyone ought to have a seer stone. Have you found yours yet? I have not. I, I have not. No. I do know people who have been searching, though. I'm not one of them, but I do know people who are searching for them. So, you know, good luck. It might be interesting. You never know. You never know. So, uh, anyway, then we... Uh, 
we come to some of the interesting stuff. Uh, you already mentioned the the, um, the trial uh, of Joseph Smith, I think, with uh, uh, in the last session. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the the, the trial uh, when Joseph uh, Joseph Smith went to uh, to work for uh, Josiah Stowell, who was a Mason. Who was a Mason. Yeah. See, this always it's cropped right. up in this book, didn't it? All of these familiar church history personalities, and now we're all of a sudden finding, like, the devil has been so tricky because absolutely everybody here are Freemasons. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. Well, well, well we're, we're about, we're, if that astonished you, we're about to get really astonished because what's coming up is even more freaking unbelievable. So, like what? So, so Stowell, Stowell hires him. Then, then Stowell, at, uh, you know, his uh, after Joseph is out there doing his magic circles and telling him where to dig and all this other stuff. Stowell's kids become concerned that he's been bamboozled. They uh, have Joseph arrested for being a scryer, and he goes on trial. Okay, this is the remarkable part. Okay, so. Uh, this trial was remarkable, if for no other reason, that the number of Lodge members who became involved, Peter Goff, Bridgman, the son and half-brother of Lodge members, Reuben Bridgman, and Adna Bridgman, uh, formally brought the charges. Local constable Philip M. Dezing, another member of Friendships, Lodge number 129, took Joseph into custody, spending two days and one night with him before delivering him to trial. Arid Stowell, another Lodge member, testified for the prosecution. Justice Albert Neely, who presided over the hearing, was a Mason, as were the two other South Bainbridge judges, Levi Bigelow and Zechariah Tarble. William D. Purple of Green New William D. William D. Purple of Green New York was secretary of the local lodge. Justice Neely assigned Purple to keep the minutes of the trial. All <laughs> so Masons. All Masons. You've never read that in any church history book, have you? And they say, well, you know, Joseph Smith was maybe possibly, maybe he heard the word once every eight years or whatever, but there was no influence. My gosh, every cotton picking major incident in his life was involved with Freemasons. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, so this, he goes to trial, he goes to trial, he's found guilty, um, but uh, it's important to note that his father testifies in the trial. And he does, yeah. Yeah. So uh, Joseph Sr. talks about his son's gift and that that he's been praying that his his gift will be used not to find filthy lucre, but for the glory of God. Okay. So that kind of, you know, that's, I don't know if he chose his words carefully to appeal to Masonic sensibilities or whatever when he made that statement. But anyway, could have. Uh, the, yeah. the bottom line is that Joseph, he gets found guilty, but he evidently is released. Okay. Right. And I think that it, that probably had a lot to do with the Masonic connections. They did have the option back then of just releasing a prisoner and and giving them a warning and telling them don't come back here for a year or something like that. Right. And that's kind of what we what most people think happened to Joseph there. Uh, but I think that that now that I've read all this, it's like, wow, I think the Masonic uh, Brotherhood kind of kicked in there and and got Joseph Smith out of trouble. To be quite honest, that's what it seems like to me. It might have been so, because of his father's Masonic connections, and and of course his absolutely. his brother. His grandfather, Joseph Jr.'s grandfather and uncle. I mean, they're not going to allow their family members to start having trouble with the law over stupid, trivial things that absolutely all of the other countryside was also doing. And right, all right. of them were also Masons doing it. So it makes you wonder, really, uh, is this... Is this more about this, the uh, seer stone and the treasure digging, or is it more of the fact that these guys were poor and so they would have been looked on as lesser 
than, and maybe that's why we don't have, uh, at least as far as I'm aware, correct me if I'm wrong, if you know better, we don't have a lot of uh, court documents or legal uh, bound texts showing all kinds of trials in that era of people being arrested for treasure digging. Yeah, do I, we? I don't know. I, I, I don't know that we do. I do know that we have the records for this trial. Yes. Um, yeah. But th this is just yeah, one odd out trial. It's just, not like yeah, that was a regular one. occurrence. So why were they picking think, on him? Yeah. I think, I think probably, you know, most of the time, it seems like I read this somewhere. It might've been in Quinn's book, uh, Magical Review, but, uh, um, I think a lot of times people were just escorted to the edge of town and said, look, don't come back here, you know. But oh, they could have been. Case, yeah. <laughs> in, in this case, you have two sons pressing charges that their father is being defrauded. Being duped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That made it that made it much more serious. And, and Josiah Stowell was a pillar for the, that community as well. It wasn't some, uh, you know, dumb hick farmer out, you know, Right. In the sticks, he was one of the biggies in that community. He was one of the important ones. Yeah. Yeah. He was one, uh, you know, a revolutionary war hero or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so, yep. yeah, he was he was not not a trivial member of the community. So I think that had a, a big uh, a big influence. Uh, <clears throat> and then we come to uh, this really interesting faculty of a, a Brack. Faculty of a Brack. Yeah, the Faculty wow. of a Brack. What did you think of that when you read that? Now, I, were you were aware that Lucy, so, you were aware that Lucy had written that, right? I was aware that Lucy had written that. However, what did you was, ever always think of that? Well, how did you handle I thought, that? I thought that that was folk magical stuff coming from the Magus. From that the what? Was what I thought. From the what? From the, the, the Magus, Magus. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, the Magus. I guess that's how you say it. Magus, not Magus. Ma well, uh, Magus is fine. Magus, Magus. Um, but, um, which they considered it sort of a talisman to, you know, for protection and that kind of thing, is to have this magical word uh, that you could write out and it would form kind of a little pyramid when you wrote it out in a certain way. Here, I'll show you um, the, I'll show yeah, you the picture of show, it. Yeah, you show, you be the audio visual there. Um, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, what, what surprised me was in her, in her uh, book that she wrote about uh, Joseph Smith, um, this is what she says. She says, uh, and she's talking about the rumors that they were lazy, uh, uh, no goods. Uh, she says, I shall pursue another topic for a season that we adopted our labor and went at trying to win the faculty of a brack, drawing magic circles or soothsaying to the neglect of all kinds of business. We never during our life suffered one important interest to swallow up every obligation. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Abracadabra. So <clears throat> the important part here is this phrase here trying to win the faculty of a brack, okay? And a brack is just for, uh, short for abracadabra, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, all right. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. Uh, I just want to point out one small detail before you give us the total deal. The, uh, okay. The, the faculty of a brack just happens to be the seventh line, which is a very significant number to Masons. It happens to be the seventh line in this triangle for Bragg. Mm -hmm. Kind of an interesting situation. Okay, carry yeah, on! Yeah. yeah, yeah, certain numbers are very important masonry, including three and seven and some other ones. Yep. Alright, so here's the... One, two, here's three, the four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. <laughs> <laughs> all, all the way up, you know, 10 to the 100. All right. Um, <laughs> so so here's the, the mind blower. Uh, when she says to win the faculty of a Brack, she is quoting 
the exact wording uh, that is in a, uh, it's called the spirit of masonry. And um, uh, it's like, uh, what do you call it? Uh, it's not a history of masonry, but it's uh, uh, the, about the- A monitor or uh, guide maybe. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's like a guide to Mason. Yeah, a guide to Mason. That's a good good word for it. Uh, <clears throat> hey, what page are you uh, on see. without a brag? I'm on page 40, 43. I'm on 43. It's just before you get to the Look at that. Guide. We've already read 43 pages of this book in the last hour. That's incredible. There you go. Hey, I, I want people to pay me for this. What? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I'm teasing. Uh, <laughs> You're not too expensive, are you? <laughs> No, I'm not. So, so it says in here, uh, they also conceal the art of changes, the way of winning the faculty of a brack. Okay, this is in that spirit of masonry, masonry book. So Lucy Mac Smith uses the word in the same the, that phrase in the exact same way that they did in masonry. And it, that was like, holy crap! Yeah, right. That changes. That changes. The, sort of the meaning of what she was saying there. I've, I notice also. Yeah, I notice also it's saying that uh, uh, on page forty-four, the Christian Freemason George Oliver wrote of this talismanic use of a brack to bring forth perpetual health and happiness and protection from temporal dangers and I present you with the talisman that Joseph Smith had. There you go. So a brack is associated not only with health, magic, Freemasonry, but also with talismans and that's definitely an important aspect of Joseph Smith's overall uh, philosophy. It's like I was talking with uh, Nick earlier, and I was asking him about, uh, was there a tie-in with, you notice on the cover that uh, the, the two circles behind Hiram and Joseph, and Nick is going to pursue this further into uh, a, another text on Joseph Smith where all of these aggregates of what what would you call it spirituality ma magic whatever talismanic enemies will call it sorcery and evil whatever whatever you label it all of this yeah. was involved in joseph smith's time and we've yeah. got the evidence that's the amazing thing you never heard yeah, any of this those, in church the, those amulets and the the use of the amulets is also something that's hugely popular, and, and people people just kind of wove together, even though they might have been a Christian and went to the Baptist church or whatever. Yeah, they still believed in these in, in these magical, uh, you know, the, the folk magic stuff, and they believed there were, were power in these talismans. Yeah, so and there's was, some of the amulets. Uh, yep. Yeah, yeah. People they had carved. Uh, Things carved on canes. They had things carved on knife handles. They had coins they wore on their neck. People carried. Are you reading out of Quinn? Are you reading out of Quinn? No, I'm not. No, I'm well, not. you you just mentioned canes and and all that. And there's the next picture in Quinn, Joseph's cane, <laughs> and well, he yeah. had it also. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yeah, yeah, but they, they had these these talismans everywhere. And this one was Hiram Smith's. Hiram also had yeah, Hiram. talisman, mm -hmm. or at least uh, at least something that he wore around his neck that was a was a uh, an amulet. So both Joseph well, and Hiram had it. Well, Hiram also had Hiram. Hiram also had. Um, the magic knife, the one, the knife that right has all the, there, the magical symbols on it. There yeah. it is. And uh, I actually know a lady who who saw that when Elder G. Smith, the Church of Patriarch, he used to have a lot of Hiram. You know, he was a direct descendant of Hiram Smith. Sure, he had a lot of his artifacts, and yeah. she'd seen that knife. She'd seen that knife. So anyway, but this 
this kind of blows my mind. This just shows you how pervasive this kind of stuff was back then. Yeah. It says um, uh, that um, for writing for writing in the mid-19th century acknowledged the talismanic use of abracadabra as an irresistible charm to avert evil, cure fevers, and dispel diseases, particularly if written in the shape of a triad like you just showed us. Even to the point of early duelists, so if you're in a duel with somebody, being required to swear that they were not carrying such a charm. <laughs> so Isn't that fascinating? Don't you wear a bulletproof yeah, vest in our yeah. day. <laughs> if, if they were wearing that charm, then that might make them win that duel. So that's right. Uh, I mean, that's just, it was super powerful uh, uh, mystic lore yep. that was literally everywhere. Yeah, uh, all everywhere. over the place. Yep. So, um, so you see all these ideas, uh, all these influences, you know, the confluence of all that is, uh, you know, becomes. Uh, entwined in Mormonism to a huge degree that I did not have any inkling of. Uh, so this has just been super fascinating to uh, thunder it, huh? Now you you said you you told me before we came on what you did instead of uh, going further into the book, you reread chapters one and two. So this basically gives our audience. Uh, we've been going about an hour. Um, I'm, yeah. This kind of gives our audience the the overall theme, the basis that not only the all pervasivity of uh, masonry as a philosophy, but the actual incorporation of the symbols in usable form on your canes, your knives, amulets on your neck around your neck, et cetera, stones, rings, whatever you could have to incorporate this uh, spiritual, mystical, today we would call it superstitious, which may or may not be bad. I'm not quite sure that's actually the right way to approach it either. Um, but this whole this whole thing is just saturated in the Americas, the land of rationality. You've got Thomas Paine, for crying out loud. Ben Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, the author of The Old Farmer's Almanac. What are you doing being involved with mysticism and treasure digging? And yet so many people were. And it, it was super pervasive. Isn't that a fascinating part of this book? Now, the cool thing is what I'd like to do with you next time, if it's okay with you, is let's get through the book. And, and we're not in a hurry. It doesn't matter if it's next month or whatever, in a month or so. And let's get back together and talk about it some more because there are some real treasures in this thing, man. When you get to the part, when you get to the part, of the first vision, I'm just telling you, as a very good friend, sit down. <laughs> because if you don't, it's going to knock you down on the first vision. And then when you get to the Book of Mormon, stay sat. <laughs> and when you get to the Book of Abraham, <laughs> I'm telling you, Sit down. There, there is some real choice stuff in this book, man. You've got some fabulous materials. So uh, I, I'm happy with one thing about this, Doug. Uh, I've told my audience, and I've, you know, I'm ranting and raving now. I'm almost becoming a raving lunatic about this, but it's exciting because it's such a good comprehensive analysis. But uh, now that we're getting the actual uh, much more full context and all, it makes it more enjoyable to read this part of history, whether you're doing it with Mormonism in mind or America. That's kind of what's so fun about this book is it opens up more than just one avenue so that we can get back interested in our American heritage. No, we don't have to practice it. No, we don't have to believe in it. 
but it is part of our collective heritage. And it's really fantastic to study it, isn't it? You, it's it is. it's it fun is. to see your soul it's, enjoying it. So this book, this book is something I think that everybody should should read. Yeah, I, I, I would put it on the must read list. You know, there's some books that are you might want to read, and there's other books that you kind of have to read. And this to me is because I don't think you can get a true picture of what's going on in their brains. I just I feel yeah. like true. you know that that I just sat down with a psychologist who interviewed Joseph Smith and dug into his psyche. You know, this is how important this book is because this shaped the way these people think about everything. And to them, these uh, concepts and mystical, uh, you know, legends and things, they, they were all just completely interchangeable and, and enmeshable with Christianity. They didn't have any problem you know, blending all this stuff together. Yeah, they weren't they weren't that. sneaking behind the barn, uh, practicing Freemasonry. It was it was right out there on the street. Really. It was right out there. Yeah, yeah. And, and you see how all this stuff came together. You know, and it gets mixed up in this big uh, cosmic mixer, and out the other end squirts Mormonism. You yeah. know. Uh, yeah. And all these influences converge. And the fascinating so, thing is, it's not a negative on Mormonism any more than it was a negative on the Christianity either. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. 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 So, so I think it's, uh, it's essential to really understand what was going on in the minds of the people then. And, right, and, and yeah. how that shaped how that shaped their beliefs, how that shaped the way they acted. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure that, uh, like you, you were telling me to buckle up for the rest of the book. Oh boy, <laughs> I will do that. Oh, I'm dude, we have got some. Stuff, so. We have got some fun <laughs> discussions for the audience to go through with this. We really do, man. It's awesome. It's it's. I this this completely gave me an entire new mindset on the book of Abraham. And that was after I did that series of what was it like 20 videos where I thought I was trying to be as exhaustive and all inclusive as I could. I missed an entire dimension. Never even thought about it. Wait till you, I, I can't wait to get your reaction on that. <laughs> we'll have some good times, some good conversations Absolutely. in the future. So, all right, you guys, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to head off for a little while. Uh, I've got Cheryl Bruno coming tonight, eight o'clock. I'm going to be interviewing her. Hopefully you can join me. If not, it's okay. It's all recorded. So you can watch it later, but, uh, I might, I might do one more. I don't know. My wife got yelled, kind of, kind of talked to me and she said, you know, you're overdoing it. You're expecting too much from your audience. They don't want to watch you all day. And I said, well, it's not me. They can turn the video off and listen to it, you know, <laughs> but there is a lot of fun information to share. So if I'm not back, I will be back tonight at eight o'clock mountain time. And uh, I'm going to call it good for here. Doug, thank you for being on the show. It's good to talk to you as thank always. You, Absolutely thank my you. pleasure. And we will do a lot more of this. We'll catch up to you just as soon as we can. We'll see you guys tonight, eight o'clock. I'm going to head out and go get something else done today. Woohoo. Although there's nothing as important as this. <laughs> uh,